G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David Brown and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're so glad you can join us for our podcast. Today's podcast focuses on Psalm 95 and a lot of us have had to stay home. So we just pray that if you had to stay home because you were feeling unwell, uh, that you can use this podcast uh, to grow and uh, that this podcast helps you to build on your relationship with God. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry of Dolby Anglican Church, then please visit anglicandolby.org.au. Thank you. God bless. Enjoy the sermon. So Psalm 95, which we'll read together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. If there was ever an Anglican psalm, Psalm 95 would be it. Um, In the old 1662 prayer book, um, I hold in my hot little hands a 1662 prayer book um, that's over 100 years old. Um, There's some parchments in here um, from from the 1920s. Um, In the morning prayer service uh, of the Anglican Book of Prayer, so the prayer that Anglicans are encouraged to pray every single morning, Psalm 95 is read. Because it's a call to worship. It's an encouragement for us to come before God and to worship him. And so now as we worship God in Bible study, I encourage you to pray for me as I pray for you as we break open God's word. Loving Lord God, we thank you that you are gracious and compassionate. You are the rock of our salvation. You are worthy of all praise. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, we, help, we pray that you would give us soft hearts and help us to hear what you have to say to us and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in this series, um, we've been looking at... A psalm each week. In the first week, we looked at Psalm 51, which was a psalm of repentance, saying sorry to God and receiving the forgiveness that God offers. Last week, we looked at Psalm 121, which is a plea to God for help, knowing that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble, empowers us to live lives of worship. Psalm 95 is all about worship, but it also warns us against having hard hearts and warns us against false worship. 
as it encourages us to worship God with our whole lives. Today we're going to look at three things as we go through Psalm 95. We're going to look at that question, what is worship? We're going to hear the warning about worship that we see at the end of Psalm 95. And we're also going to do a bit of lettuce worship as we go through our passage. But if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 6 of Psalm 95, right there at the bottom of the page, you'll see there is a call to worship. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker. This little verse might lead you to think that worship has more to do with our bodies than anything else. Bowing and kneeling are postures of worship worldwide. But in Australia, we don't often bow or kneel to anyone, even in church. Perhaps this is because our bodies are stiff um, and we can't get into those postures, or maybe if we got into them, we'd struggle to get out. Um, But it's also because we often think of bowing as an awkward groveling gesture, something we wouldn't want anyone to do for us and something we wouldn't expect from anyone ever. But as uncommon as it is today, this is what the psalmist encourages us to do before God. He encourages us to let our bodies lead our emotions into a position of obedience, humility and vulnerability. When I proposed to my wife, Zoe, you saw my wedding photo um, up there in the kids' talk. When I proposed to Zoe, I got down on one knee and then I got down on two knees (laughs) Because I realised that in that moment, my heart was in her hands. I had to look up to her and say to Zoe, will you marry me? I did it because I wanted to show her I loved her in that moment. And in that moment, my future was in her hands. The posture of my body reflected the posture of my heart. When you bow before someone, before God, your body language is saying, here I am. I want a relationship with you, but I want you to say yes first. So if you're feeling game at home today, you might want to go home and try kneeling and bowing down before God yourself. As you do, you may find yourself feeling vulnerable and lowly. You may find yourself looking up at the world around you or even down at the floor in front of you. It's hard to feel proud or angry or self-righteous while you're kneeling and bowing down, because these aren't dominant positions to be in. You may even feel your heart following your body to become open and vulnerable before God. You may feel your heart softening. Next, the psalm tells us why we should bow down before God in verse 7, and you have to flick over the page. This is the justification for worship. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is the reason for worship we see all throughout the psalm and also all throughout the Bible. Not only has God made us, but he loves and cares for us. It's there again in verses 3 to 5. Sorry, there's some page flicking. But if you look at verses 3 to 5, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. Not only is God worthy of our worship, because he's made the world and everything in it, 
But God is great. He's a benevolent king who deserves honour and respect. Now, I've said this before in a sermon, but in the 21st century, we think of kings as distant, useless figureheads. The kings in the Bible were all powerful rulers whose decisions had a big impact on your life. Sometimes you had a bad king who made your country poor and failed to protect you and your people from enemies. Sometimes you had a great king who would protect you from harm and would help your country to thrive. Kings like this weren't just worthy of praise because they were powerful. They were worthy of praise because they are good. And God is so much better than even the best king because he is perfect. God is worthy of our worship because he is powerful and because he is good. Story is told of a little boy who made a model sailboat. He cut out the material, um, he used rope to string up the masts, uh, and then when it was all finished, he painted the hull of the boat. He was finally ready to take down to the stream, and so he, he went down to the stream and put the boat in the stream, and unfortunately, a gust of wind took the boat down river and lost the boat. One day he was walking past an antique shop and there he saw it, his very own boat. He went into the shop and realised that the boat was way too expensive for him to buy and the owner of the antique shop refused to give it back to him. So what did he do? He went and he got a job and he saved up. Week after week he collected his money and finally he had enough. He went into that antique shop and he bought back his boat. As he went out of the shop, he held the boat in his arms. And he said, I love you because I made you and now I have bought you back. Friends, this is why we should worship God. God has made us and in his love, he has redeemed us. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life up as a ransom for many. Here we see that worship is not just about an hour or two on Sunday, and it's not just about the posture of our bodies, it's about the posture of our hearts. When we begin to grasp the wonder of God's love and plumb the depths of his affection for us, we realise God alone is worthy of our worship. And so the only right response to God is to worship him. We can do this in many ways. Worship isn't just singing and praying. Worship is a lifestyle, a way of living in response to God's power and God's love. I can worship at work by dealing with my co-workers and customers with fairness and integrity. I can worship God when I'm with my family by treating them with care, dignity and respect. I can worship God by not fighting over toilet paper in the shops. (laughs) I can worship by myself by using my time in a way that glorifies God and has a positive impact on the world around me. Friends, we get the word worship from the old English word worship. It's almost as if you got a lisp 
worship. <laughs> but that's profound because what that means is that worship is about giving my best to whatever I found worthy of my best. True worship is living in right response to God's goodness and mercy, living in a way that shows God is the most important reality in my life. When we do that, when we put God at the top of our priorities, everything else falls into place. True worship is a posture of the heart. I say true worship because there is also false worship. Whenever we live as if something other than God was worthy of our ultimate, everything else starts to fall apart and we engage in false worship. Psalm 95 was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a big party in Israel where everyone would go camping in the desert to remember their history. Once a year, the Jews would leave the comfort of their homes and go into the desert to remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt. But they would also remember a very sad moment in their history. Look with me at verses 8 to 10. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oftentimes, in reading this, this uh, psalm in worship, these verses are taken out. They don't read these verses because um, they're harrowing, they're confronting. They talk about a sad part in Israel's history when the freed slaves from Egypt walked into the desert and only a few days into their journey, they began to panic and they began to grumble against God. They got into the desert of sin and if that didn't give it away, all hell broke loose. Just days into their journey, they got thirsty and they began to grumble against Moses, who was God's chosen leader. And they ultimately grumbled against God. They said, why have you taken us into the wilderness? Our lives were so much better when we were in Egypt because we had water, but we also were slaves. They got so angry that they were ready to stone Moses to death. And so God told Moses to gather up all the people, take his staff, whack a rock, in the middle of the desert. And what happened? A torrent of drinking water poured out. Moses called the place Meribah. And if you look in your Bibles, there's a little uh, footnote, an A footnote. And um, down the bottom, it says Meribah means quarreling. And he also called the place Massa. And again, there's a footnote. And Massa means testing. At Meribah and Massa, the people of God engaged in false worship. They quarreled with God and they tested God. God showed the people miracle after miracle and still they refused to trust him. They refused true worship. Instead, they let their fears and idols guide them in false worship. As a result of their failure to trust God and keep the, to keep them safe and bring them to the promised land, the people wandered the desert for 40 years. 
A trip that should only have taken a couple of weeks from Egypt into the promised land in Israel took 40 years because a whole generation of false worshippers had to die out and a new generation of true worshippers had to emerge before they could enter the promised land, before they could enter into a place where these poor slaves could have rest. This is one of the reasons why Lent is 40 days long. It's there to remind us of the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness because their hearts were so hard. Lent is a time when we remember that our hearts are bent towards false worship and we need to learn from the mistakes of history. The purpose of Psalm 95 was to remind people to not harden their hearts, not to bow down to panic and fear. They would live in these tents and the elders would remind the people of the good parts of God's liberation and love. But they would also say this, do not harden your hearts as our people did at Meribah. Friends, it would be easy for us to judge the people of Israel and say that they were stupid for refusing to trust God. But we do this all the time. We live in a time when fear is often our prime mover. Fear comes from false worship. When I entrust my life to God, his perfect love casts out all my fears and suddenly I can engage in true worship. When I'm so afraid of the future and my circumstances that I can't think or function properly, I thrust God from my mind and from my heart. And so that is why This psalm is obsessed about lettuce. Again and again, we hear the word lettuce. Let us sing. Sorry. Uh, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Verse 1. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And then if we go to verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us appears five times in six verses. It's a call to true worship. You see, God wants our lives to be filled with joy, love and hope. He knows that we can only do this when we worship him, when we offer our lives up to him. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives, which we see expressed in this psalm. God made us. Jesus redeemed us on the cross. And only in relationship with Jesus can we discover wholeness and love. So friends, what does it look like to worship God at a time when the whole world around us seems to be panicking about COVID-19 or coronavirus? Well, it's not the first time God's church has come up against viral outbreaks. In Roman times, people made fun of Christians because instead of running from plagues, they got down to business and lived lives of worship. They cared for the sick and weakest members of their communities, whether they were Christians or not. In a detailed description of how Christians responded to the plague in Alexandria in Egypt, Bishop Dionysius writes this. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. They are infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Heavy stuff. And friends, while I'm not saying we should go out and try and heal everyone we come across or walk around with reckless abandon to basic hygiene, I am saying that for centuries, Christians have responded to trials in worship. A worshipful response to coronavirus may include staying at home when you're feeling sick to protect others. It may mean cancelling travel plans or gatherings, but it also means we need to keep connecting with one another and calling one another to worship. We might have to do this over the internet, over phone, yes, even in small groups. Coronavirus is a serious and deadly disease which the World Health Organization has declared a pandemic. Shouldn't be treated lightly or flippantly, but we need to remember that we face the reality of death every single day. The fear of death and disease should never cloud our judgment or stop us from worshipping. Responding to the threat of nuclear warfare, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this, and you could almost replace um, the word bomb for coronavirus. He says this, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together in light of these events. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of dance. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they will not dominate our minds. In other words, Lewis is saying, let us worship. Let us worship by praying, working, teaching and enjoying the life God has given us in such a way that it reflects his goodness and love over everything. God is on the throne no matter what. Only God is worthy of our worship. So let's worship him with our whole lives, come what may. Worship is a posture of the heart. It's a commitment to loving God, not just on Sunday, but with our whole lives. Worship is committing to having a soft heart before the God who made us and who loves us unconditionally. Worshipping is remembering why God alone is worthy in recognition of his goodness, love and mercy demonstrated to us in Jesus. Worship is reminding ourselves to keep our hearts fixed on God, trusting him in all circumstances and saying to the world around us, let us worship the one and true God with open hearts and open lives every day. Amen.